This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey there, I'm Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. I'm super excited to bring you today's episode. My guest on the podcast today is Dr. Adam Price. Dr. Price is a clinical psychologist with more than 20 years of experience working with children and teens. He is also the author of He's Not Lazy, Empowering Your Son to Believe in Himself. During our conversation, Dr. Price explains what he means when he says that teenagers aren't lazy. We also discuss the true underlying issue that causes our teens to opt out and why Dr. Price believes that we must encourage our teens to do the things that they are proud of. There's a lot to unpack here, so let's get started. Hi, Dr. Price. Thanks so much for being here today on the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. Betsy, thank you so much. I, I'm so excited to be here, and I love the title of your podcast. Thank you. Thank you. My husband came up with that, um, but it really sounded like it encompassed what I was trying to achieve here, so that worked out well. And speaking of liking titles, I'm a huge fan of the title of your book, He's Not Lazy, Empowering Your Son to Believe in Himself. And we're going to talk so much about that and more. But before we do that, we just take a minute and do a quick intro for my audience? Well, yeah. So I'm a clinical psychologist. I've been doing it for more years than I'm going to admit. Um, I'm located in uh, the tri-state area. I have an office in New York City and in suburban New Jersey, uh, where my wife and I live with our three dogs and raise two teenagers. <laughs> and I, I also would like to tell your audience, I'm a recovering adolescent, so <laughs> I know a little bit about that. <laughs> I say that to my kids all the time. I was a teenager once. They're like, no, you weren't. <laughs> Not in their day, I guess I wasn't. So great. So again, I, I'm a huge fan of your book. Read it. It resonated with me so much. And let's just break it down. So the title, He's Not Lazy. I mean, if I had a nickel for every time I called my kids lazy and heard another parent call their kid lazy, I'd be rich. But I love the subtitle, Empowering Your Son to Believe in Himself. So can you kind of talk about like what you mean by he's not lazy and why teen boys choose to opt out, as you put it? Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, that's really what um, what the book is about. I, you know, uh, so, so it's so easy to see, to see teenage boys as, as unmotivated, as uncaring, and as lazy. And they help us out because they want us to believe that, you know, they want us to believe that they just don't care. Um, they put up this facade. And I think beneath that, at least in the kids that I have, I have worked with, and as, as I said, you know, I've worked with many, deep down, they really do want to succeed. Deep down, they do care. Deep down, all the values that parents have instilled in them, they're floating around there somewhere. You know, they may, they may seem hidden. Um, but for a lot of reasons that I'm sure we'll get into, they have opted out, which to me means that they're flying under the radar. They're getting into, they're getting just good enough grades. They're, you know, the guidance counselor at school may not be worried, but their parents are worried because their parents are flipped out because, you know, we feel so much pressure to have our kids to, to be successful parents. We feel like we need our kids to go to the top school 
um, and to get all the credentials that, you know, really, really is a myth, but that's, that's the pressure that we're under. So, so my solution uh, is really kid focused. It's really to help kids to figure themselves out, to figure out, you know, I talk about autonomy and I'm sure we'll get into that too, but to figure out what they want, the direction that they need to go. And then, and to remind parents constantly that they're growing, they're developing, that that's why they call it childhood and adolescence, because they're not, you know, as, um, uh, what's her name? Jensen, who wrote a great book called the teenage brain says they're not, you know, they're not, uh, adults with less smiles on them. Mm-hmm. You know, they're really a different creature. A creature nonetheless, but different. And why boys and not all teens, right? Because it's he's not lazy. It's not they're not lazy. Well, honestly, that was a, a lot of what I wrote about applies to girls. There is a chapter on boys and masculinity and why uh, it's hard for boys to ask for help because boys are, you know, we're training boys and men not to be vulnerable. And in order to ask for help, you have to be vulnerable. Um, but I, I think a lot of it applies to girls as well, but it was really partly because I thought that, uh, there hadn't been a lot written for boys in a while. There have been some some great books out there, but not in a while. And so it was a way for me to help focus my thinking and my writing. And because I'm a man, I end up working a lot more with, with adolescent boys and with adolescent girls. Although I like to work with adolescent girls because they talk. Mm You don't have to pull it out of them very often the way you do with boys. That's for sure. Yeah. As a mom of two teenage boys, I know exactly what you mean. So you talk about in the book about the paradoxal response, and this I found really interesting. So can you talk to my audience about that and explain what you mean? I absolutely can. And, you know, I was I was talking to a, a high school uh, advisor today about one of my patients, you know, and he said about this young man who never asks for help, he said, you know, the thing about teenage boys is that the harder you push them, the less they do. Um, and it's kind of like the Chinese uh, finger torture, um, you know, that that's made out of straw. And you know how it works. If you pull, you're going to get stuck. And if you just kind of let your fingers gently glide out, then they're going to come out. So, so it's really, the paradoxical response is really about ambivalence. And ambivalence is... Uh, um, two sets of feelings. Um, Many people think about it as mixed feelings. I kind of want to do this. I kind of don't. It's really mixed feelings. I really want to have that ice cream cone and I really don't. Although I don't know why anybody would not want to have an ice cream cone. Um, So so if you're ambivalent about something, you feel the push-pull. But what happens when there's two people involved is that the ambivalence gets shared. And the experience the example I use that most people resonate with is if you're a parent, as I'm sure many of your listeners are, um, when when a couple is preparing, a young couple is preparing to have a baby, you know, maybe the, the mom says, I'm really ready now. And the dad says, he's not a dad yet, but, you know, the future dad to be, I'm not ready. You know, I still want to travel. We need to be a little more financially secure. And that's fine. So the mom is off, you know, planning the color of the nursery and thinking of baby names. And all of a sudden the dad comes home one day and he says, you know what? I think you're right. I think I'm ready. And then the wife is like, whoa, not so fast. Because as long as she knows her partner is holding on to the part of the conflict that is don't have a baby yet, she can be free to have the part of the, the conflict that's I want to have a baby. And, and, and so they often go back, at least that's what my wife and I did. They often go back and forth for a while until they're both ready. So the same thing happens with a parent and a child, but they don't go back and forth. So that's why there's a paradox. So as long as the parent is holding on to the, you've got to do better in school, you've got to care about school, and taking ownership of the problem, 
then the kid who, as I said before, really is ambivalent about it, really does want to do better, and in some ways doesn't, we'll talk about that, um, then the kid can hold on to the ar- that side of the argument, which is, I don't care about school, it doesn't matter to me, it's not important, you're the problem, get off my back, I can do it. And so then that's where the, that's where the, the uh, parents and the kid get stuck. Uh, in what ends up often being a really bad power struggle. Um, and again, the way out of the Chinese finger trap is not to pull, 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 because that's just going to get you further further caught up in it. So what is the underlying problem? The underlying problem often is, um, I mean, it's twofold, and, and every every kid has their own unique set of, family and kid has their own unique set of circumstances. But what I find often is is a boy who's afraid a boy who's afraid to try because it's much easier to say, oh, I didn't try. If I did, I would have done okay, than to actually take the risk, be vulnerable, try, and risk failing. So that's part of the equation. The second part of the equation is that kids are under so much pressure these days. And we as parents are putting them under that pressure because we feel under pressure, you know, um, uh, in terms of what we perceive to be getting ahead. I mean, you know, things are tougher out there than they were. Um, you know, I, I went to an Ivy League school for college. If I if I applied now, they would laugh. They wouldn't even open my application, you know, with the credentials I had back then. It's just it's just a whole different ballgame. Um, and so, so I think that that pressure um, forces well-meaning parents to try to rush development and try to push kids um, to be, you know, you know, th- th- to be fully grown adults at the at, by the time they're eighteen or seventeen or sixteen, you know, where they can be mini executives and 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 have everything planned and organized and and have the maturity that kids just don't. They don't because they're not supposed to. So that's part of the problem. So I think boys feel this pressure, and and then the the fear of exposing what isn't a failure, but what they're worried about is a failure. Yeah, I think that's so so insightful. I mean. I say this all the time, our kids aren't being taught to fail. It's all about getting the A. It's all about getting the good grade. It's not about try it and fail and try again. I mean, that's just the way school is built. Um, So if it's not happening at home, they don't learn how to fail, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I can imagine the, the overwhelming, the crippling fear that that would create. So you said in the book that for parents, there's a need for greater objectivity and greater empathy. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I will. But before I do, there's one more element that I that I want to touch on real quickly. And that's that there's not a whole lot in it for boys to do well in school. Boys get status by what they can do, by how far they can throw a football, by how fast they can run, even by who they can, you know, what class they can crack up. Girls get status, status social status by who they know by what friendships they form, um, which is why there's the mean girl phenomenon, but also why girls are often more cooperative and want to please. So for a boy to get an A in a, in a science test, it's not really going to go and brag to his friends. In fact, he may be telling his friends he got a C plus um, because it's more important for him to be, to have that, that, you know, that I don't care affect about school and then to prevail um, you know, usually it's in the realm of athletics or video games, um, scoring the lead in school play, not so much for boys, unfortunately, in terms of status at that age. But so anyway, so I just want to add that as a third element in terms of objectivity and empathy. You know, this is this is a thing that and if your parents can take two things away from this podcast, I know it's a lot for 
to, to, to take two things away sometimes. <laughs> um, but I hope they take away a lot more than that. But the first is, and, and I see this all the time, um, the first is to, when, when a situation comes up, when a kid presents a dilemma, a problem, something you're worried about, before you say anything, ask them a question about it. Before you, and I'll give you a, a, you know, a better example, but before you launch into, you know, you can't quit the football team because you made a commitment to the coach and you're going to let the team down and you have to play and thinking while the parent is thinking, oh my God, what kind of parent am I? If my kid quits, I have to, you know, I have to instill in them that, you know, the importance of team teamwork and not quitting and you know, never be a quitter, et cetera. It's a whole different conversation if the kid comes in and says, I'm quitting football and the parent says, Oh, why? Tell me about it. And we never do that because we're always so either we want to fix the problem or, the, or or we're anxious about what the kid is presenting to us for a whole lot of reasons, including for their best interest, that we forget to say, oh, tell me about it. Hmm. And then you might get a very different answer. Um, and you may not get it the first time or the second time. But if, if, if your son and daughter begins to trust that you're going to ask and you're going to seek to understand how they feel, they're going to be more likely to want to talk to you because kids won't talk to us unless they know we're listening and we really, we have to hear them first. And so that means being non-judgmental, And that means saying when the kid says, well, the coach didn't play me this week, you know, I thought I was going to get played and then, you know, I'm on the bench. Um, then the parent can ask an, another question. Oh, what do you think happened? And another question, you know, to try to understand. And eventually, hopefully, all the parent has to say is, well, what do you think you want to do about it? Or the kid may come up with their own solution. And once you have all the data, then you can give your advice and your input in a way that the kid is ready to hear because they feel like they've been heard. Now, that's called empathy, right? And a lot of the times, the reason parents don't go down this path is because we get confused. Empathy doesn't mean I agree with your position. It doesn't mean I think you're right at all. It doesn't it's not even an inkling of that. All it means is, I hear you and I understand how this situation looks to you and I get it from your perspective. That's all it means. But parents are afraid that if they allow that opinion to come out, they're validating it. Hmm. And that's not true because once one, and, and listen, this works with your spouse too, by the way. <laughs> um, um, you know, so once someone feels heard and understood, then if you have something to say, they're going to be more receptive to hearing it. You know, well, okay, you want to quit. I, I really get that. Maybe, you know, I think, probably better not to quit the team. Um, you probably will feel better in the end, but why don't we see if there's something we can do in the meantime to try to help the situation? You know, can you talk to the coach? Can you think of anything? Um, is there anything that is worth it for you in, 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 in playing? You know, and, and I think you just go down, you get there further. In order to do that though, Betsy, you have to put your own feelings aside. That's objectivity. That's the hard part. That's the hard part of parenting. And so the second thing that I hope parents take from this is don't take anything your child says to you personally, ever. Because 99% of the time it isn't, including I hate you, right? They don't really hate you. Um, you know, when they're little, they say that because it's the only words they, they know to say, I'm really angry at you. Um, and I'm not saying you need to say that's okay, you can say that. But it's also important to know that it's just about anger and the kids need to be able to express anger. So so if you don't take it personally and you know it's about something the kid, your, your son or daughter is going through or something they're trying to work out and chances are you're the safest 
emotional person in their life, so they're going to work it out on you, which is unfortunate, but it is part of the job we signed up for, um, then I think it's much easier to kind of step aside and um, just hear what they have to say and tune into what, they, what they're talking about. Yeah, that's the hard part right there. I mean, I'll be honest, I take things personally when my kids ignore me or aren't the nicest people to me. But yeah, you're right. We signed up for this job and we have to learn that we're their safe space. So they're going to lean on us and sometimes not treat us the way we want to be treated. Think about it this way, though. From from your child's perspective, they have been nurtured. They have been cared for. Their needs have been met by you. You have loved them. You have made them feel good. You have given them a nice place to live and made their favorite meal on their birthday. Why would they want to give that up? But they know they have to. That's that's a big ambivalence about adolescence. So they know they have to. So in order to kind of move away from that for a little while, they got to treat you not so nicely. They got to ignore you. They have to pretend that they don't need you anymore, even though they know they do and you know they do, probably even more so. They just need you a little bit in the background. So if you think about it that way and you realize that in order to be a parent, in order to win, you have to lose, and it's not easy to do that either, but that's what we that's what we do then it's easier to not take it personally because what they're really saying is I, I need you so much and I'm so scared to leave this house ever that I'm going to pretend that I don't need you and call you a so-and-so and give you the silent treatment. Yeah, I'm experiencing that in a big way right now as we prepare for my oldest to go to college next year, right? We're in the middle uh, of the college admissions mania and the thought of a year from now him being far away potentially is... It's hard to swallow. But yeah, you're right. We spend their whole life preparing them to leave the nest. And then when it's time to leave, we have to get ready for that. So We do, which is, of course, the topic of another (laughs) podcast and I'm sure another book. But um, And there have been a few good ones ready to launch as one. But um, Yeah. yeah, and you know, the universe has played a mean trick on us by making applying to college so stressful that that last year that we have with our kids, at least until January, it's usually pretty miserable, which is unfortunate. And we'll be right back after a quick break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You talk about the uneven path to development. Well, I know this is a podcast, but I wish your viewers could see your expression as I can, because it was, what is that? And it's so puzzling. Um, But development isn't a straight line, you know, and any, and we know that, you know, we know that from raising little kids, you know, they don't, they don't all of a sudden get a little more mature. And then the next day they're a little more mature and it's not how it works. They take two steps forward, they take one step back. Um, and that's even more so true in adolescence because the adolescent, it's not just teenagers' bodies that are changing, their minds are going through a whole restructuring. And particularly the front part of the brain, which is called the uh, prefrontal cortex, which is involved in planning and organizing and seeing into the future, we call it the executive function. It's going through a whole reorganization of its own. Not really, re, not really reorganization, but uh, 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 insulation. It's called myelin sheath, and it's a fatty substance that's being formed around the nerves, the brain nerve cells, so that they information 
passes more smoothly um, and it's more efficient, but it doesn't happen until kids are in their, you know, adolescence. So, so that's uneven. And also some kids, you know, they'll say something that is really mature one, one minute and, you know, and you'll be like, wow, he just showed so much empathy for, you know, his aunt who's lost her dog or he's just so sensitive. And the next minute they're pulling their young, you know, their younger brother's hair because uh, he won't get them the baseball. So that's also uh, an area of unevenness. So you have to, you have to be able to step back and look at the big picture. I love that you brought up executive function because that term comes up a lot in this podcast and a lot with the parents I speak to. And it seems to be a huge gap um, for kids right now. Well, I have maybe a different take on it, and it's not always a popular take on it, but it's not a gap at all. Um, It's what kids are able to do. You know, it's like saying a a toddler who can't quite walk, or that's not a toddler yet, a baby who's just learning to take their few steps, saying there's a gap in their motor functioning, (laughs) you know? No, there's not a gap. They haven't gotten there yet. Um, And the same thing is true about executive functioning. Um, It is a developing, growing ability. Um, And it's really important to remember that. And so the thing is... You know, it's not just about teaching kids how to organize their notebooks or teaching them color codes, because usually what happens is parents will hire someone to come in and help them do that. And while that person is there, it's really helpful. But when the person leaves, it doesn't generalize. Um, And that's okay. It doesn't mean that that person is wasting their time or the parent's money. But what it means is that the kid is not going to get it yet. It's not going to click until they're a little older. It's just another developmental uh, uh, milestone that that they've yet to achieve. Um, and so that's my take on it. And so we, we support it. And one of the ways that we support it is by letting kids figure out how to do it themselves. The way that we hinder the growth of, of the development of executive functioning is to take over the responsibility for it from the kid, right? Um, which is, we call that helicopter parenting. And it's what I talked about earlier on. When we take over that responsibility, um, th- then they're not going to try and fail. So let me ask you, because if I, I'm just going to say one of my sons, it's not, but mm-hmm. if my son is not taking the initiative, not getting organized, not following up on his homework, all those kinds of things, it's easy to say, step back, he's got to figure it out and do it until he fails the class, right? And then I know it's his problem, but it also becomes my problem. So how do you like reconcile that? Well, I, first of all, I don't agree with just letting him fail the class. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's not my message either. But why do you think it becomes your problem? Because he's going to be living on my couch for the rest of his life. <laughs> why, why, uh, why do you think that? Why do you go there? That's where your anxiety takes you, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, we call that, psychologists call that catastrophization. You know, let's think when you're anxious, let's think of the worst case scenario. Well, let's not think of it. That's where our brains go. But it doesn't mean that at all. And there are other signs maybe to look for for kids who, you know, can't get off the couch, but they're usually usually more than just not getting a good grade in a class. So so my approach is not just let the kid fail, give them, you know, enough room to dig a deep hole and they won't be able to climb out of it. That's not my path. My path uh, that I suggest is that you are your job is to keep them on the track, right, to keep them headed in the direction. But they are the engineer. They're the one pulling the train. And that track may not always go where you want it to go. Um, it doesn't have to go to Cambridge, Massachusetts for them to be successful in life. Um, but, um, or, you know, Duke, I'm trying to think of 
school closer to you, <laughs> um, or Vanderbilt, you know, all these, all these wonderful institutions. But um, they need some wiggle room. They need to be able to get C's. They need to be able to not have to earn A's. Um, and so it's sitting down and saying, you know, what do you expect? What do you think you can accomplish in this class? They say a D, well, no, you got to keep them on track, right? Um, and then give them give them the chance to figure it out. Um, you know, not necessarily a marking period, but three weeks maybe, um, which doesn't mean going into their room and saying, do you need anything, honey, when you're really checking to see if they're doing their homework? Um, and I know you're about to ask me about computers and social media, but it does, it does um, mean giving them a shot. And then if they don't do it, then you can go in and say, you know what? I think you got too much time on your hands. Um, so I think we'll probably have to cut back on those video, the video game time for the next three weeks to see if that helps. Now, it may not help. They may not end up doing their work. You cannot force a kid to do their homework. You just can't. But at least you can, you can give them um, the space to do it and the motivation because it really is, you know, you're not punishing them, but it re- you really are. Um, but it's a, it's a way of avoiding a power struggle. So would it, wouldn't it have to be intrinsic motivation? Don't they have to want to get it done? I mean, we can hold the carrot, we can bribe them, we can do all the things, but if they don't want to do it, are we going to be able to make a difference? Well, so that's that's a really perceptive way of looking at it. And, and, and I'm glad that you gave me the opportunity to bring this out because, yeah, there's a difference. Psychologists call it in, intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. And extrinsic motivation is, you know, if you clean up your room, I'll give you a piece of candy. Or if you go to your job, I'll give you a paycheck. Or, you know, if you work hard, you'll get an A. Um, and that we want kids to be able to internalize that for two reasons. One is because after a while, that piece of candy doesn't look so appealing and the messy room is much more appealing. And number two, because we want them to be able to figure out their course, figure out where their engine is headed, right? So that's so the, the freedom to choose what you want to do and make your own decisions is called autonomy, right? But we forget, parents forget these days, and I don't know why, and I'm no different than any other parent, that autonomy doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want, and I'll clean up the pieces. Autonomy comes with accountability. Um, and actually, I want to talk about that in a minute because I have a new book coming out just today. And I want to circle back to that because I want to make sure to talk about how accountability accountability fits in there. So so we want them to develop this intrinsic motivation. We want them to be able to m- make their own decisions and then to suffer the consequences or or to you know celebrate the victories, to bask in the victory. In order to do that, we la- we have to let the consequences happen. We can't make the consequences all the time. That's why we can't rescue them all the time. The thing is, as I said to you, I am a recovering adolescent. And I almost said recovered, and I thought, no, that's not really true. Um, And as a recovering adolescent, I went to high school, as I'm sure you did. And that's part of what I'm recovering from because, you know, it can be really boring, um, unfortunately. And there are some wonderful teachers out there. And there are some, I don't know, according to my patients, there there aren't any great teachers, but I remember mine. (laughs) Um, But there also are some teachers that just aren't as, as captivating or as interesting. It's really challenging to do that. And they're not always interested in the subject matter. So... I think we 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 it is hard to want them to intrinsically want to get an A in biology when they just don't see why that is even relevant. Um, and so, you know, the idea of a delayed gratification, the idea of, you know, not so you get into the best college, but so that you get into a college that's good for you, that fits for you, you know. That is the motivation, um, other than understanding how the world works 
um, and why it's you know I happen to value education. I don't know. Call me call me foolish to be well educated. I value it too. Um, and I, you just said something too that kind of hit it on the head for me. It's it's about getting into school that's the best fit for you, um, which I think is super important. You talked earlier about vulnerability. I'd like to kind of circle back to that because. You know, boys in general, men in general, have always been raised to be tough and, you know, don't cry and, you know, don't show your emotions. And in the world we live in now, we're trying to encourage our boys to be vulnerable. But how do we do that? Well, I think that, I think that, first of all, don't use that word because that, you know, that word scares everybody away, especially men. I, and and I think it's, it's, it's not just about, about being vulnerable. It's about being in touch with your feelings at the right time um, and when it's appropriate and when you feel like it's safe. And that goes back to empathy, right? Um, but I think that one of the things that's really important is from a young age to teach boys about their feelings um, because they need to be emotional detectives and they need to understand what feelings are telling them. You know, sadness is saying, slow down. There's something happening that's making you unhappy. Let's figure it out. Anger is saying, uh, someone or something has infringed on your rights and we got to figure that out and not let it happen again. So I think that helping boys to have a, a greater sense of their emotions by talking to them about it and also by, you know, the second part of empathy, I didn't get into it, but it's kind of like taking a guess at what might be going on underneath. So once you get enough information, you know, the coach didn't play you. Now, you have to be a little careful, but you might say, I'm, you know, I'm wondering if that makes you feel like you're not such a great player. Right. I wouldn't say I wonder if that makes you doubt your athletic ability because that's too hard. But but I think that's one way of helping kids to do it. Showing vulnerability, fathers role modeling. Um, you know, I had a bad day and, and not I had a bad day. Don't talk to me. Um, but I had a bad day and here's what happened. And this is why this hurt my feelings or this is whose help I needed. Um, and moms can do that, too. I think that's really important. That's great. That's great advice. So let's talk about your book, the new book, I should say. I don't want to run out of time. Well, it's a companion to He's Not Lazy because many times parents would ask me, you know, should my, my teen read this book? Or I bought this book for my teenager. And I'm like, mm, it's not really written for your teenager. It's really written for you. Um, and then the next question was, can you write a book for teenagers? And I was like, I, I bet I can. I just hope that they read it. Um, and so I wrote a book called um, The He's Not Lazy Guide to better grades, and a great life. And honestly, between you and me and your audience, um, that was not my preferred title. Uh, my preferred title was School Sucks, But You Still Have to Go. Oh my gosh, I, I love that, that title. Well, I know, but but my publisher who was thought that parents wouldn't necessarily buy that, that's fine. Um, and then they wanted it to be the He's Not Lazy Guide to Better Grades. And I thought, well, no teenager is going to read that book and I don't want to write that book. So the, 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 the thing about the book is it's really about helping teenagers to have a great life. Um, and so there's two components to it. Um, it. There's, there's, and you know, there are methods for beating procrastination and for planning and time management and for, you know, all those executive functioning things are in there that teenagers can take advantage of and maybe use, but that's not the, that's not the meat of the book. Um, it may be what sells the book, but the meat of the book is really one chapter on values helping kids to understand what their values are and to and to 
define their values. And there's some really cool exercises to help kids and adults too, to think about that. Because once you know what your values are, once you know what you need to have and want to have in your life to make it meaningful now and in the future, um, then that that determines your goals. And that then helps you to hopefully see the relevance of school, you know, hopefully see the relevance of what your parents want you to do, but also to have more intrinsic motivation. And so I have a, I have a, a formula at the end of the book, um, kind of given the, the ending away, but uh, spoiler alert, but, but the formula, you know, I, I, the formula was going to be something plus something equals success. And then I thought, that's not really what I want it to be. I want it to be something plus something equals pride. Because I think it's much more powerful and important to encourage kids and help them to do things that they are proud of, that they feel proud of themselves, whether it's how they treat somebody or or, or how they hit the baseball or what they do, you know, uh, on the bench with the team or whatever it is, or in school. God forbid in school, but or in school, you know, they might get a good grade. And and so the the the, the formula is um, capability plus accountability equals pride. And capability is becoming more capable, discovering your capabilities. Uh, it's not having already been born with capabilities because none of us are, but discovering them. That's what childhood is all about. That's what adolescence is all about. We kind of lose that spark as adults. I, I don't know the last time that you learned to do something new as an adult. You know, I, 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 I perfected a lot of things. I'm still working on my skiing, but I haven't really taken up anything new. And it's challenging. You have to be, you have to really face failure in, right in the face. Any 16 year old that's learning to drive, you know, it's, it's terrifying. Um, so in order to do that, you have to be able to take risks. Um, not the risk of, you know, not getting caught when you come home drunk, but the risk of trying something, allowing yourself to be vulnerable and seeing where it goes. So that's capability. And then, and then at the end of each chapter, I talk about how a teenager can hold themselves accountable, right? Rather than have their parents do it, how they can hold themselves accountable. And if they do those two things, take risks, discover their, their capabilities based on their values, um, hold themselves accountable, they're going to, they're going to learn what really makes them proud of themselves. And, you know, parents always ask me how you help a kid's confidence and self-esteem. That's how. I can't wait to buy this one. I'm seriously, I'm going it's on, on sale today. I know I'm going on Amazon as soon as we're done here. Okay, great. <laughs> I made my first sale. I'm so happy. Yay! I'm sure I'm not your first and I certainly will not be your last. This has been so eye-opening for me and such a thrill because, like I said, I'm a huge fan. Love your book. Love the work Thank that you. you do. Oh, and people – well, let's talk about where people can find you because you also write for Psychology Today, right? Yeah, I have a blog in Psychology Today. I haven't contributed um, lately so um, because I've been busy with this project. But if you – it's called The Unmotivated Teen, uh, although I write about more than just that. But if you go on Psychology – Psychology Today has a wonderful, uh, you know – blogs on every subject you could think of in terms of psychology. So I have one of them. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I have a web, there's a website, he's not lazy.com where you can find out more information about the book and download some of the, some of the things that I recommend from the book. Okay. Some of the exercises, social media. Um, yeah, no, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I, I, ha I have a Twitter account, but there's not, I don't, I don't do anything with it. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we'll, I'll send people to your website. I'm going to put all these links in the show notes, including a link to this, your, he's not lazy and the new book. Thank you so much. Um, so people can find it. Thank you so, so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Whether you are the parent of a teen boy or a teen girl, I hope you found this episode helpful. 
I think it's easy for us as parents to fall into the comparison trap of viewing our kids' progress as it relates to others their age. Are they keeping up? Are they on track? As Dr. Price discussed, we tend to want to rush our teens' development when the truth is that they just might not be ready. I remember when my boys were babies learning to walk and talk. I worried that they weren't advancing as fast as the other kids in the playgroup. If I had just been more patient and open to the fact that they will get there when they get there, I would have saved myself a lot of grief, and I wouldn't have pushed them so hard. The same is true right now. I usually use the car analogy, but I like the train analogy that Dr. Price shared. Our job is to keep our kids on the track, but they are the engineers of the train, and we need to let them drive it. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I'm so grateful that you took the time to listen, and I'd really appreciate it if you'd follow or subscribe to the High School Hamster Wheel podcast in your favorite podcast player. I welcome your feedback, and I'd love to hear any ideas you have for future episodes. Be sure and check out the show notes at highschoolhamsterwheel.com slash 105, where I will include all links mentioned during this episode. If you know of a teenager who's unsure of their next step after high school, a college student rethinking their future career path, or a young person who just needs some guidance while evaluating their career choices, I can help. You can learn more about me and the coaching I offer at BetsyJewelCoaching.com. That's it for today. I'll be back soon with another episode of the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. Hi, this is Kim Thompson, host of Storytime Anytime, a podcast packed with songs, stories, and a whole lot of learning fun. Each episode will explore a new topic like dinosaurs, sharks, space travel, chemistry, horses, reptiles, and so much more. New episodes are out every other week, so check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. It's really story time and music at its best, exclusively for kids.